Cause they're protecting people like yourself I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth oh. I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth Tra la 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 Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM in New Orleans. We are Radio Noel HIV with programming dedicated to human rights and social justice. WHIVFM.org, we honor independent voices. End all wars. Before we get started today, did you know that WHIV is a volunteer-driven community radio station? We are not a commercial radio station, and all of our hosts and DJs work hard to provide programming dedicated to human rights and social justice, and as the executive director of this organization, I thank each one of them. We are able to honor independent voices with your ongoing support, so please become a member of WHIV today by setting up recurring donations of any amount that you wish per month. That could be $1, whatever is good for you. All donations to WHIV, as well as all money or goods that are donated to WHIV are all tax deductible. So go to our website, whivfm.org, and click donate. You can support us also by wearing some of our groovy new t-shirts that we've got. Those are available on our on our online store. So please go to whiv.org and click store. Thank you for your support. Thank you, New Orleans, for supporting community radio. We do appreciate it. At WHIV, we are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station. End all wars. It is a pleasure to uh, announce in a moment our next two guests, but before we do, the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute will be hosting their Fusion Conference on November 1st in downtown New Orleans. This year's conference will provide a nonpartisan platform to discuss sustainability and climate change. It will also include national and local speakers who will discuss everything from environmental justice to pro-climate economic development. Registration includes lunch and a reception, so please go and register for more information Visit NorleyFusion.com. That's N-O-R-L-I Fusion.com. And I a little sneak preview. We have actually the executive uh, director, uh, Stephen uh, Ruther, uh, who will be uh, joining us in just a moment. Lastly, uh, we love and are so appreciative for support uh, from uh, the New Orleans Jazz Museum. We do get support from them, and we're very grateful for that. So their latest exhibit is Drumsville, Evolution of the New Orleans Beat, kicking off a, uh, a an opening reception on Thursday, November 8th at 6 p.m. And it's free and open to the public. It features local food and live music. Drumsville explores the origins and evolution of our city's unique drumming traditions and highlights iconic local drummers from both past and present, from Baby Dodds to Johnny Vidakovich. So please visit nolajazzmuseum.org to RSVP. So it is a great pleasure uh, to introduce a friend and colleague, uh, Mr. Stephen Ruther, who's the executive director of Norley. The mission of Norley is to help promote regionalism and to promote a diverse cross-section of current and emerging leaders from the business, nonprofit, and government sectors throughout the region with a uh, more thorough understanding of issues and an enhanced ability to collaborate for the greater good of the community. Norley draw, draws upon a diverse group of stakeholders from around the 10 parish region to 
engage in thought-provoking personal and professional development programs covering topics such as public policy, healthcare, education, diversity, and equity, environment and sustainability, as well as economic development and criminal justice. More information about Norley can be found at norley.org. That's N-O-R-L-I.org. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And closer yeah there you go and Stephen talk to us a bit about Norley before we talk about the fusion conference that's coming up sure so Norley is a nonprofit organization we've been in existence for just under 20 years and we uh, we recently became a 501c3 entity and um, what we do is we have a variety of programs geared towards building relationships between leaders uh, in the 10 parish region um, where basically they can get to know one another work with one another do do deep dives on various issues that impact our region, and ultimately be able to build relationships and collaborate for the greater good of the community. And this is done on an annual basis. So you bring in a class of about 50 individuals. So you, you, so folks kind of apply to be in a class, and then that class uh, meets on a monthly basis. Correct. Uh, to a uh, same group meets at various locations and and, and, and participates in different uh different uh, activities or topics. Uh, so one topic may be healthcare, another one may be the environment, another one may be criminal justice, another one may be environment. And how do I know all these? Well, because I'm from the class of 2014, I'm proud mm -hmm. to say, which is I like to say, this is the most liked class. Because <laughs> everyone says they come from the best class. So we had to change it up and say we were the most popular class. So, uh, so is that, uh, how, how is that, uh, how does that work? So how do y'all make that selection? Uh, and how does it, moving forward, uh, I know it's not uncommon for me to see names of graduates of Norley to be uh, constantly uh, kind of what we would consider to be the change makers of, of the Southern Louisiana or the 10 parish uh, region. Right. So the way it works is we have an application process that opens in March. And we have, a, at this point, a pretty broad network. We've had, um, since we started, approximately 700 individuals uh, who we now consider alumni who have gone through the program. So we have a pretty good base, a foundation to draw from where, uh, through just uh, relationships and people working with friends and colleagues, um, they'll refer the program to other individuals and say, hey, I think you'd really enjoy this. Which um, is how I got in, by the right, way. Right, exactly. Which is exactly what happened with me. A very close friend was uh, the class of 2013, and she insisted that I, I, I sign up, and I was the class of 2014. Yeah, and so people go through it. They have a great experience. Yes. And um, a large part of what we do is, obviously, we represent 10 parishes in the region. So we want to make sure that for all those topics that you mentioned that we discuss uh, through our monthly sessions, that we have a really good representation, diverse perspectives, um, not just across gender, ethnicity, and race, but obviously uh, also your your background in terms of your career, your industry that you work in, um, as well as geography. So all those things are really important. We don't want to have too many uh, attorneys or educators or bankers or whoever it might be, uh, nonprofit managers in the class. We want to have a good uh, broad cross sections that we can engage in what is the most productive conversation possible. And then uh, moving forward now, now that you guys have the Fusion Conference coming up, so you guys are also now introducing other types of programming a part of as part of the whole Norley package then, correct? So this is separate from the monthly class that meets on a regular basis. Correct. And we're actually unrolling a number of new programs over the course of the next year, but uh, the one and that we're here to come to, to WHIV about. and talk about those as yeah, well, by we'll the way. Yeah, I'll be glad to. I'll be glad to. But um, we have the conference coming up. And so one thing, uh, we've really done, a, I think, a fantastic job, if you ask any alumni, um, with the programming that we've traditionally 
done, but Agreed. The, the request has always been, well, we'd like to have more. So I go through the program, I graduate, and then what? We want to have more engagement. We want to continue to have these discussions and grow and learn and, and uh, meet other individuals who are interested in, in bettering our community. So a lot of the program that programming that we're developing is focused on re-engaging those individuals and giving them additional opportunities to be involved, um, continue that leadership and uh, education process, um, as well as perhaps hopefully attract other individuals who maybe don't know about the core program, um, but are interested in some of the other things that we're doing and, and take a second look at us. And specifically the Fusion Conference that's coming up. Yes, yeah, so we have that coming up this Thursday, November 1st, and um, this will be the first time that we're doing it. And uh, it'll be a rotating topic every single year based upon the topics that you mentioned earlier, everything from healthcare to education to criminal justice. And this year we decided to take a broad approach and a little bit different perspective on discussing climate change and uh, sustainability. Um, obviously, in Southeast Louisiana, these are topics that are extremely important Great concern. Uh, to us and, and yes. to our you know, entire eg- existential well-being uh, over the next hundred years. And so what we wanted to do is create a platform um, where we could have those discussions, uh, which are very difficult discussions, depending on sure. how you want to view it and, and sure. what you view is the best path forward for the sure. state, sure. Um, but be able to have those discussions in um, a constructive way, in a productive way, and um, be able to have great dialogue about it. So just slightly putting you on the spot a little bit, um, sure. how, how do we have these conversations when there you know, may be very differing outlooks on on the whole idea of of climate change and and i know that and i i want to preface this by just saying that that the the probably the thing that i got the most from being in norland i and i probably wouldn't have understood it as well had i not experienced it how the 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 varying thoughts and and how well let me just say how important it is to listen Mm -hmm. and how important it is to listen to other folks that have other ways of of thinking about things now for me it's pretty clear when it comes to the environment and climate change i mean certainly whiv has a very strong position on that the board of directors of whiv has a strong position and i personally have a very strong position on that so i think it is important for folks to get into a room that maybe have different ways of of thinking about things and really take an opportunity to listen to one another. Yeah, so I, I can respond uh, in two ways. I think, first of all, you're seeing across the country more of an acceptance uh, in the general consciousness that this is an issue, and you're seeing this even uh, with traditional oil and gas and traditional energy where they're acknowledging climate change as a term and as something that um, we certainly need to figure out moving forward, right, at the very least. Right. Um, and then my second thought would be aside from that overall recognition, um, I think there's just, again, once you get people in a room and you have the opportunity to discuss, to discuss it, I think we have a lot more in common than we have separating us. And I think what we see on social media, what we see uh, in terms of the news or whatever it might be, um, those sort of things can sometimes uh, divide us more than is actually there. And so when you talk to most people, regardless of where they fall in the political spectrum or otherwise, most people want the same things out of life, which is, you know, quality jobs, uh, great health care, opportunities for education, opportunities to have and lead the sort of life that they want. And those sort of philosophies and concepts transcend whatever your, your political alignment might be. And so our philosophy with what we do is that 
we have inherently good people who want to do good things. We just need to put them in a room, kind of take out all these other filters that might distort how we really feel and try to have good conversations for figuring out how to move forward on these issues. I know that the slate of speakers that you have are, are excellent. Uh, and uh, as I, uh, I know, uh, quite a number of them, and uh, there are folks that actually, have, uh, quite a number of them have appeared here on WHIV. In fact, I've interviewed mm-hmm. quite a number of them as well. Uh, so I know that the uh, information that y'all are presenting is really quite quite fantastic. So again, this is the uh, Fusion Conference. is going to be on November 1st in downtown New Orleans. Uh, it'll provide a nonpartisan platform to discuss sustainability and climate change. Uh, again, it includes national and local speakers who will discuss everything from environmental environmental justice to pro-climate economic development. Registration includes lunch and the reception. More information can be found at norleyfusion.com. That's N-O-R-L-I-F-U-S-I-O-N.com. Also, I just want to bring everybody's attention to what a great experience uh, Norley uh, has. The, the, the mission is to promote uh, regionalism and to provide a, diver- a diverse cross-section of current and emerging leaders from the business, nonprofit, and governmental sectors. I, I can't say... Just from my class alone, the deep uh, connections that that I have made uh, with uh, folks that I probably otherwise would have not had an opportunity to cross paths with. So, if you are interested, if these, if what we're talking about is even remotely interesting, please consider uh, going to a norley.org. That's n o r l i dot o r g, and just look, look it up and, and, and consider applying. Uh, there are uh, scholarship applic- there are scholarships that are available. Some of our listeners that would be the first thing that comes up. So, there are scholarships yeah. that are available. And again, they are looking for you know. First of all, they brought me on in the class. So <laughs> they are they truly are looking at a diverse group of individuals and and thoughts and uh and certainly uh you know my 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 thought was uh was certainly my conversations and the things that I personally talked about uh, were were greatly appreciated uh within my Norley class and uh, and I certainly uh, support all things that Norley does so again the fusion conference November 1st in New Orleans and you can get more information at norleyfusion.com and Stephen uh Ruther who is the executive director of Norley thank you so very much I really appreciate Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the great work that you do. Thank you so much. And we will, uh, as more uh, programs uh, come through with Norley, please uh, consider coming to WHIV and doing more of these as well. We'd love to. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll see you on Thursday. Great. See you then. (laughs) Great. It's uh, uh, such a pleasure now to introduce uh, uh, Miss Gloria Searson. uh, And uh, before I do, let me just say that uh, this is 102.3 WHIV. You are tuned in to NOLA Matters, Health is a Human Right. I'm your host, Mark Allendary. It is an honor and pleasure to really uh, to uh, uh, have on air now somebody who I have heard much about uh, and somebody who it's a a pleasure to uh, consider as a colleague. And that's Miss Gloria Searson, who is an entrepreneur, a renowned healthcare advocate, a community leader, an educator, and a speaker in the area of HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C. There you go, two topics that are near and dear to my heart. With more than 25 years of professional experience, Miss Gloria is considered to be an expert in her field. Hep Magazine named Miss Gloria one of the top 10 H, uh, Hep C uh, advocates of 2014. She has had the opportunity to be the guest and keynote speaker in cities across the country as well as abroad. Her advocacy efforts include sharing her testimony in Washington, D.C. before Congress as well as the White House. 
driven by a passion to serve and encourage people in need. Miss Gloria started the Coalition on Positive Health Empowerment, also called COPE, and more information can be found at copehealth.org. She's the president and founding director. She leads COPE in its commitment to eradicate hepatitis C, uh, hepatitis C through advocacy, education, patient screening, counseling, as well as peer uh, support. Uh Hang on one quick second. We are having some technical difficulties. We'll be uh, right back. Sorry for uh, the uh, the delay here. Community radio at its best. There was a little bit of technical difficulties, uh, and uh, one of the doors got closed here in the radio station that should have been closed. Uh, but we are uh, back uh, up and running. Uh, and again, it is a real honor and a pleasure to have uh, Miss Gloria uh, Searson, who is a HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C advocate. Uh, Miss Gloria, thank you so much for appearing on WHIV. And uh, uh, thank you for, I, you're in New Orleans uh, here for some functions that we'll talk about in a second. But I would love to hear your story when when uh, I was first made aware of, uh, of you and, and the work that you do with COPE, I was also uh, told a bit about your story and I, I felt immediately compelled to reach out to you to see about getting you on air uh, and uh, when uh, you came to New Orleans. And, and my understanding was that, if I'm correct, that initially you were supposed to come tomorrow or later on tonight, yeah. but you actually changed your plans a bit to, to come on air. So I can't thank you enough for appearing on WHIV. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So please tell us your story. So first of all, thank you. I'm, from, I'm Gloria Searson. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I'm a person living with HIV. In 1991, I got diagnosed. And I'm a professional social worker. I've been working in substance abuse at the time. And I really wasn't dealing with my own issue, but I was trying to help other people. Your own issue being? I mean, HIV. HIV. And I had no choice but to go and learn how to, to manage the, the virus. Uh, upon doing that, I realized that most people weren't aware of how to manage HIV. There was very little science around how to take care of people. It was really just a lot of overall wellness and you know quality of life things that we were talking about in the early late 80s and early 90s. So I, I mean, went at that time, just to be clear, and I'm very, very sorry. I'm very conscious that I interrupted. I'm yeah. so sorry. But uh, at that time, that was also a time, just to add context, where there were no medications and the awareness of, of HIV, uh, flash forward to 2018, is completely different as it was at that time. 
Absolutely. Um, we talk about things like stigma and unawareness. I mean, it's no comparison to what it was like then. And I'm an African-American woman. At the time, I was under 30. So it was not something I even thought was my issue. So although I had heard about uh, GRID, and, and grid and, is gay, gay, gay related. related immune deficiency right. syndrome. And, I haven't heard that, that term in a while. And of course, no one's going to think that that's their issue if of they're course, an African American woman. It's got the word gay in it, yeah, right? So, um, it was. It was. It's been a uh, sort of an interesting journey, um, and you never know what your higher power has in store for you until sure. things like this uh, come come to play. I was initially going to be a lawyer, uh-huh. and now I'm a social worker doing uh, a lot of. Uh, good work in healthcare, um, and I'm very happy about it. And I don't think, and I, this isn't something I share with everyone, I don't think if it had not happened to me, I'd be here in the same way. So there is something about having something impact you and not have things you need to take care of it available to you. And if you're just an, someone who's just naturally ready to take care of yourself, you're going to look for those things. And when you find them, you're going to share with others. Sure. And that's sort of been my mantra from the beginning. So I've worked, as you can see, over 25 years in HIV, which started upon my own diagnosis, because as I learned, people wanted to offer me jobs. This wasn't an easy thing to learn, and then to be able to share it with others. So that's kind of my beginning. Um, I went on to work in a variety of jobs, trying to do this work as a case manager and um, as a treatment educator. And what I really found was that we probably needed to be more involved in policy. We probably needed to be more involved in how things get delivered, not just be the recipient of what's available. Um, People like me were left out of the conversation about what to do, how to do it. Studies weren't even including women Women, so you know African-American women were the last to even be included. But so the first piece of advocacy I did, interestingly enough, was around eliminating the pregnancy, the, the childbearing age as a barrier for women to enter studies around HIV. Because as I began to talk about HIV to women and to men and to people of color, they had not heard things that related to them. There was no data, no information that they felt well, this could be something I could benefit from as well. So then it became a challenge for me to use this very good information and all the progress that was being made and make them see that this is something that they could follow and be inclu- it's including them. So as I advocated for that, it just opened the door for, for me to continue to learn and go to scientific conferences. And I share a lot with folks that I tried not to take any science in my entire academic career. So to sit here and say that, you know, I'm just so in love with science and epidemiology. You never know where your life's going to be. But I'm happy because being in this position gives me a chance to meet some of the great thought leaders and what we consider key opinion leaders, people who've actually you know, develop these drugs, people who, you know, been involved in the first clinical trials. Having that information, when you're someone who's standing in front of other people trying to motivate them, it really does give you an advantage because I now not only have the personal experience that they have living with it, I'm actually rubbing elbows, as you say, with the folks who are doing something about it, doing the research and development. And it actually led me to go work inside pharma because unfortunately, I know you know how HIV funding has sort of been geared towards prevention. So what that meant was there was very little jobs for someone like me who wanted to actually talk about the treatment side and and get us involved in, in the work that needs to be done to make medicines better. Um, if we weren't involved in the treatment sites, we were very um, left out of how 
drug development went, what was considered important for a drug. You know, we used to talk about uh, in the in the early days when treatment was sort of changing to where we had options. Remember when you know it went from eighteen pills of something you might not have wanted to deal with, but you had to, to maybe, you know, four or five or six, and you did, could choose. Did you ever think that it would come down to one pill no. once a day? <laughs> but, you know, it, it's still similar to how it is because when you had a whole bunch of pills, you related that to maybe if I had less, it would be better. And we used to do these surveys, and it would show that women really didn't care how many pills it was. Huh. They just wanted it to work, huh. right? <laughs> That's, so yeah, that's so a really you, fascinating. If you really looked at things, because women are more prone to, to we want you to work, we want right. you to be durable, <laughs> we want you to you know be something we could trust and sure. rely on. So when people started to push things because of its convenience, I think it was important to have people like myself and others in the community giving people other information to make of course, those choices. Of and that's the part of this job that I sort of embraced because right, the empowering part. Yes, like. You know, imagine if someone picked your person to, you know, be in a relationship with for the rest of your life or for the immediate future. That's what these drugs were were giving people. They were saying, here, this will be good for you because of this. And, you know, maybe you like it another way. Right, (laughs) right, of course. And and so, like, what was your trade-off? You know, did you want some GI side effects or did you want some mental... Bone marrow suppression (laughs) or did you... (laughs) Did you want some uh, mental uh, mental health health issues, bad dreams and stuff? And, you know, it was easy to have these conversations and have people really be involved in their own choices because, you know, if I could say, well, listen, I'm already not sleeping. I already... Right. you know put myself through some psychological right. trauma maybe i'll stick with the gi side effects right. and give it a chance right. versus oh i'm gonna just jump on that so the beauty of that has just you know gone well, on yeah too. so can i yeah let me just say that i mean there's so many things i want to ask you about but i'm going to jump to the early days of hiv and uh and how one of the things i usually try to talk to people about that you're mentioning now and i try to impart upon younger doctors who who weren't around at the time and that is that one of the reasons why HIV, you know, and I, I often joke that I get carpal tunnel for patting myself on the back, <laughs> you know, for being part of <laughs> a... you do that? Part, you got to give me that yeah, training. <laughs> uh, for being part of a group. You know, we really, uh, of all illnesses in the medical spectrum, there's no question that HIV is 100% the one that made leaps and bounds forward with respect to going from, and I hate using this word, but going from a death sentence to now going to chronic disease, which now data, all data indicates that people living with HIV that take their medications regularly, not only are they expected to live the life expectancy of somebody that doesn't have HIV, but now we know without a question of the doubt that they do not transmit virus to their intimate partners through something called, obviously, and I would love to maybe pick your brain about this a little bit later through something called you equals yes. you but we really I take me back to the early days of age so one of the reasons why we got to where we got to is without question that there was a fire yes. in the advocacy community for people with HIV and just like you're talking about that 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 in in that HIV physicians uh, um, or infectious disease doctors at the time that pharma uh, really embraced the advocacy groups yes. and now either you could say they embraced it or well, the we, advocacy no, we, groups we down the door and made them, you know. Uh. Or you could say that dumping red paint on uh, oh, Marty on, on. Delaney and the folks, right? Greg and 
also ACT Up. The folks from ACT Up are are huge heroes of mine because what they did was they, they, they forced the academia of the time, the uh, physicians of the time, the scientists of the time, like there was no input that you had from the community that the, that the academia or the elite were serving. And what happened was for the first time, the, the, the folks with HIV, people living with HIV, basically, like you said, broke down that door Mm -hmm. and broke down that barrier and actually got involved. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LP. It is really an honor and a pleasure to have Miss Gloria Searson, who uh, is a renowned healthcare advocate, a community leader, an educator, and speaker in the area of HIV/AIDS as well as hepatitis C. Uh, Miss Gloria uh, was diagnosed with HIV in the early 1990s uh, and also started an organization called the Coalition on Positive Health Empowerment. So, can you take us back yeah. to those early days and really I mean, like? I'm, I'm, I see. You see, I can't even sit still when good, I start good, talking good. about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The HIV advocacy community, HIV treating community, HIV community is probably the most powerful community I've ever seen. Um, We've made healthcare change the way it delivers services. I mean, one-stop shopping, uh, wraparound services, all that became something people cared about from the perspective of HIV patients, because we understood you just couldn't treat the HIV and ignore the social determinants. You couldn't, you know, try to get someone to take medicine, right, that needed to be refrigerated or that needed to be eaten with, taken with food, and they didn't have those things. Can you imagine all the other diseases that no one's looking out for these things? I can count a few of them. I mean, I'm sure that there are some communities that would really want some of the progress that's happening in oh, there's HIV. no question PPD. about it i mean if you think about think about this i when was the last time you got a ppd shot like <laughs> i mean think about it. the tb people have been using the same way of diagnosing latent tb infection for greater than 70 <laughs> years whereas you know now they've got the new interferon gamma essays like the yeah. quantiferon but they're still using the ppd which is a test that was invented like 70 years ago and it's still the standard of care right now exactly. and that's tb that's that's the cousin of hiv Sort of. And, you know, a friend of mine has lupus, and I mean, she has no support groups, you know, that there's one on every block in, in most areas where it's inundated and it's a high-impact area, right? I mean, even when you go to places that we consider rural or underserved, there's probably more HIV services than other types of services. That's true. And that is a testament of who and what we are. So what was it like? So when you were first diagnosed in the early nineties, the I mean, you were in Brooklyn at the time, or yeah. Well, yeah, I was in. I was living in Brooklyn. Yeah. So the reason you have to get involved is a perfect example of that question. So I'm living in Brooklyn, and I get tested in Manhattan. And then they send me back to Brooklyn because someone who doesn't look like me is involved in how people deliver healthcare. Someone who doesn't know who I am tells people what it is I might want. So after I get diagnosed, they tell people, well, you know, people like to get care in their own community. But at the time, there was really no good, I don't want to say good care, but there was really not a lot happening in terms of how to treat HIV in the way in which 
it, it became in Brooklyn, but at that time, I was sent to an FQHC with a nurse practitioner, and we both looked this up online together, versus I had to walk past several academic institutions to get on the train. So once you see that, now that I'm going to be in healthcare and I'm going to help people access care, I'm going to try to fight to change the way people refer people to care, because I don't want you to refer me back to a community, because you, you've heard from some market research that I want to be treated in my community. No, I want to be treated by an expert, someone who knows how to treat this particular issue, who will take who I am into consideration. And that is what I learned from getting the, the early treatment, as opposed to being angry about it. I tried to just make movements, you know, try to, I used to go down to, I'm sure you heard of the, the area where they have the LGBT center, the gay and lesbian center, it's in uh, the village area of New York City. That was the only place ongoing HIV education was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. So that information wasn't funneling to Brooklyn, nor was it funneling uptown to the, to Harlem or to the Bronx. So that's the first thing I did with the information. I remember the first time I heard about Bactrim, I came uptown, and um, for those of you who don't know, Bactrim was probably the first treatment for HIV. <laughs> right, it's a, uh, Bactrim is an antibiotic that, that most people would know for treating urinary tract infections. It actually helps prevent several of the uh, end, end uh, stage, what we refer to as uh, AIDS-defining, at least at the time, we don't really refer to it as anymore, but AIDS-defining illnesses such right. as PCP pneumonia right. and uh, toxoplasmosis, which are complications of AIDS particularly, not necessarily and HIV. Grateful we don't see those as, as much. Which is really remarkable. Right. I mean, the PCP we see the toxo we don't really see that much anymore which is a topic of conversation next time we have yeah, you back yeah, i would love to have you to, to talk about that but you know for, for the for the most part i think the advocacy that the hiv community is unparalleled and one of the things i do at every talk someone tries to invite me to speak to the the workforce the people who are on the on the front lines and i really sort of of hiv yes i really try to like block off the people who invited me and, and speak directly to them and, and really speak to the skills that we've had to learn, you know, as a case manager, as a social worker, even as a nurse or doctor in this field, we had to learn way more than other folks did. Um, Absolutely. We had to learn. What but not only did you have to learn it, but you were also, for those that, that were also that had HIV or hepatitis C, you were also uh, advocating on behalf of yourself as well, especially, exactly. uh, it, you know, especially as a female yes. and as a person of color. That, I mean, that those were not what you, most people living with HIV at that time, you did not fit that that no. box at all. So you were also advocating, you know, on behalf of not only for yourself, but you were also right. very likely to be a leader in a community that was as of yet defined. I mean, now we know black women are the largest, uh, and and I would love to get your thoughts about that. Oh. As to and 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 uh, uh, and I will ask you that in a second because <laughs> I do have a couple of social determinants questions to ask you, especially that in the South. But for yourself, I mean, there were, there was a strong level of empowerment. And in fact, you even said a little earlier that had it not been for HIV, you would would not necessarily be here. And I've heard a lot of people with yeah. HIV, especially those people that are living with HIV that are strong advocates in the community, oftentimes say that. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you go around every table, I'm sure you've seen that. There is a connection to us in this field. You know, even if it's our uncle, our aunt, you know, sure. some something showed us that something was done with, you know, 
not with no dignity for for people who should have been treated with at least oh, some human dignity. Well, the right. so that's, history of medicine is. Re- I mean, <laughs> I, I do lectures on structural racism in medicine. So, so okay. Yes. So, so basically, um, I think the fact that there were no blacks in just. I mean, there were some gay black men that were visible. Sure. Shout out to Phil Wilson, who was probably one of the few most of us all know. But most people weren't disclosing that were working. That's true. It was nice for everybody to work in the field, but they weren't always disclosing. And what I found is that when I disclosed to my clients, they tend to have gotten better. Yeah. So there was some power in that that, yeah, that I didn't read in the book no question that nobody about trained it. me in. No question but about I, it. I felt it. And sure. interestingly enough, um, in 2006, which is the same year that black women uh, overtook gay white men for who were the majority of the epidemic. Okay, it was 2006. So the, the, the fastest number of right. or the gro- fastest number of individuals that are right. and getting it's been HIV. since that time. Right. I know we are seeing now older and younger, uh, mostly LGBT and and questioning community transgenders we see them still getting new infections but we didn't pay enough attention to young people and old people when we did education back then and usually this is how we find out we didn't do it where we left things out that's who's getting the new infection when you looked at why were women becoming right the the new infection it wasn't necessarily that i think they were all just getting infected i think they were just starting to be tested because all of that time went by when no one was really still telling them this was their issue sure so even though there were women i know personally that died in the late 80s and early 90s of things like um uh some ge- uh genital tract issue cervical or cervical cancer, cancer. Or something. I, you know there's always some physician or researcher that says things like if we dug them all up we'd probably find out that they had hiv and if they were iv drug user probably hep c or both right and no one tr- talked to them about it no one tested them and maybe based on their lifestyle and their uh their failing health no one bothered, you know, to sure. really do some of the proactive stuff. So, you know, those are things that, you know, those are my strong feelings. There's not a lot of people that show the data of what I believe affected things. Sure. But, but when we talk about how this epidemic changed, it was really uh, people standing up who looked good, who, who were saying, I'm doing the right thing. I'm trying to manage this HIV. It's not easier. When we stood up, more people came forward so, people started to I often it. say that the probably one of the most successful uh, things that the LGBT community did was come out of the closet right be this way people can would be able to say oh look at there's you know my my uncle is gay and I love my uncle or right, my right. neighbor is gay or you know right. my sister is gay you know you can normalize you exactly yeah. but then let me ask you about what happened at the time when like Greg Luganis or somebody like Magic Johnson especially as a black male who openly came out at that time I, I me as a physician mm-hmm. and and as a physician who works primarily in HIV and hepatitis C mostly in marginalized communities mm-hmm. so that's mostly means not exclusively but means uh, communities of color magic johnson probably and just the just the uh entity of magic johnson being healthy and being a very very robust appearing person yeah. it 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 I think it gave a lot of folks hope uh, at a time when otherwise folks maybe didn't have that hope, and especially in the early 90s. And so. I'm grateful for Magic. You know, he took a lot of flack, but I'm really grateful because 
I don't believe he's the only one. No. <laughs> no, yeah. but he was the one that was brave but enough did it. to do it. And the other thing, too, well, I Elizabeth was like. Glazer, see, it's all about who touches you, who who gets in your ear. who, Because if you're if you're around other people who want you to be quiet, who don't want anybody to know, and, and your family don't want anybody to know, you're not going to come of course. out. So I believe the fact that he listened to Elizabeth Glazer, and she said those powerful things, like, your community needs you oh, to do this. I can't tell and you how that's effective. Why he did, like he had to like do a lot of the same things that we did. It's on another level. I give you an example. I worked with Magic for three years, and one of the interesting things is when I used to ask him stuff like, "I need you to tell people stories, not get tested like everybody else. I need you to stand up there and tell them how when you go to the hotel, do you have to take the, the stuff out the? Do you have to get a, rent the refrigerator to put your for meds in? Like all right. of that stuff, I wanted him to share. And when he started sharing that, you could actually see he lost friends. He was stigmatized. There was a lot of shame attached. It didn't matter. He had to change a lot of things in his life. I always tell people the difference with him is someone probably prepared the chicken, you know, made it grilled, took the skin off, right? right. Uh, there's, a, there's a gym in his house, and someone can motivate. And he was already an athlete. Sure. So there were going to be some things, but don't think you can't get there. And right. and I say to that, look at where we are today. Where, yes. where we're, we're on, like, I think it's we're up to 80%. We're trying we're, to get 90, 90, yes. 90 undetectability. Yeah. And we're up to 80 so to 82 percent of, of, of people who are who have HIV that are virally who are aware of their diagnosis, who are taking medications. About 80 percent are virally suppressed. See, that's a that's a that's good. That's yourself some huge, carpet tunnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should all, <laughs> like that's worth. We've gone from we've Thank gone you. from never. Well, I, 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 you <laughs> should give yourself carpet tunnel. I, Could I'm, you imagine? <laughs> I remember um, people. Listen, I have I have a friend in New York who started a social club for heterosexual people with HIV because women in general. And again, I don't want to generalize, but there was a lot more men with HIV still willing to have sex. You know, even if they didn't tell, I mean, was it the best way? But they weren't not having sex. There were a lot more women who had just decided to give up that part of their sure, life. Sure, sure. So he was like, I'm trying to have sex with all these women. Right, and right. None of them have having oh, sex. Oh, yeah. Part of, part of my job as a clinician is, is telling no, just, women, this is Kelly Burke. She's our treasurer. Okay. Uh, I, I want to say that Magic Johnson was one of my heroes growing up. Mm-hmm. So whenever- Kelly, it's better when you do this on a microphone. Yeah. Yeah. So I just yes. Yeah. He's he's, but yeah. So magic played a huge role in in what this did. The set, the worst part about it was, it became also part of the sale, the selling of how people wanted to use their drugs versus the messaging of right. of how. So we we sort of saw that you know he went from one company to the other and doing the marketing right, right. that takes a little bit away. Right. But um, I do believe. What he did did at least say to the black community, you know what? Beware, it's out there right. and it can happen to you. And for whatever reason, I'm not judging him. I'm not here to sure, say who sure, he is. Sure. For whatever, it also said to heterosexual. Yeah, absolutely. People that this who was didn't not, think that this was was right. their you know uh, right. disease to worry about. Right. So I, I I'm grateful for anybody who disclosed. And just to quickly, if anyone's listening who who wants to know you know what can happen that what's the worst that can happen is that generally people know something's wrong, and when they find out what it is, it it is usually better. Right. I <laughs> I, I oftentimes tell all my patients at least because disclose. I go up and down and wait, and it's like you know right. the 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 
the, if they didn't know, it'd be like, well, what's wrong with her? Like, right. that's how families are, especially. Right. But now that they know that, like, she's really doing well with right. HIV, right, you know, right, as right. opposed to well, you're the also, other things. And the reason why I brought up Mads Johnson, I don't often bring up Mads Johnson, mm-hmm. but the reason why I brought him up is just because at the time you were talking about how you yourself, um, it, that there was a community mostly of, uh, of, um, of individuals, in your case, being a person of color and a female person of color, there just wasn't a lot of role models. And you acted as that role model and yeah. I think you probably helped open up a lot of doors in your community that a lot of other I didn't even think about that I didn't have one I guess yeah, I had to see, create the, one that's what, right? that's, the, that's what I'm saying and the reason why I brought it Magic Johnson was just as that what he did on a, on a larger scale again I don't I'm not mm. you know one of these that, that, that bring right. him up regularly I will say just real quickly though that Greg Luganis is really an important person I don't know if you remember Greg Luganis I, do. Yeah. I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting him oh, did you really like I think what he did also at the time and how he had to disclose to me is really one of the most brave ways and just to kind of remind folks Greg Luganis was in the 1988 Olympics he was an Olympic diver he took a dive uh, uh, and uh, in, in, in the competition in during the Olympics and he uh, hit his head on the on the dive the diving board and when he hit the water he noticed that there was blood that was in the water and he actually got out of the water immediately and went directly to the physicians that were uh, standing by the pool and told them that he had HIV and his concern was for everybody else that was gonna jump in the pool because nobody knew at the time and those doctors made a game time decision as to recognize that the virus was going to be killed by the chlorine and the other divers were otherwise safe uh but really uh i i one day look forward to meeting greg luganis and just say that i think that that moment in 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 history in hiv history is so incredibly important and and a little bit about he would have actually probably had more um more uh visibility but you know he didn't have a great experience with medicine so every time someone would ask him he'd be honest so people didn't put him in front of the mic sure 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 (laughs) if you talk about like how the bad things about medicine. And so people be like, well, we don't want him yeah. to talk. As opposed to sharing what you talked about, which is, you know how important that was? It was just as important when the when the doctor went over to Magic when he had the cut and he didn't put gloves on. I don't know right. if you remember that. I the whole world that. was watching. Right. Because if he had put gloves on and right. contaminated well, you know, that himself. That reminds me of the moment when uh, Princess Diana visited uh, in in, uh, in London. She visited a home for, for men that were dying of AIDS. And uh, fortunately, those homes don't don't oh, uh, exist it? anymore. And one of the good problems, I'm actually on the board of directors of one of those former homes. Okay. Uh, it's called Belle Reve. There's two of them in New Orleans. One's called uh, Lazarus House, and the other one is Belle Reve. And they have shifted now into homes for people living with HIV, but they're transitional to helping folks kind of get their life back on track. And, you know, whereas at, at, at one time, these were homes where people, people where they went to die and thankfully those the, we don't see that anymore but she went and uh, was instructed to put on gloves when she got there and she did not wear gloves when she got there and that also sent a very powerful message and it's funny that we should be talking about this because one of the things that I do professionally um, and certainly with the radio station I mean what did you think when you heard there was a radio station called WHIV? I, I was like how amazing I'm like <laughs> this is so awesome you know right so what we try to do is is doing just that is that we utilize um, um, 
with our annual events called HAMP, the HIV Awareness Music Project, is that we kind of capitalize on the influence that celebrities will have to go promote HIV yes. testing uh, and utilizing that celebrity and that influence, because it's really an undue influence, but it's an influence nonetheless. And by capitalizing on that influence, I think it's inc incredibly important. My father took care of men. Of, he was kind of the doctor of the stars in Los Angeles. He was an optometrist, and as an eye doctor, he took care of many and made many diagnoses in Hollywood of famous Dude. actors who died uh, of AIDS. And it's a good point. People don't realize the dermatologists and the ophthalmologists are your best diagnosis. Yeah, the, yeah, especially <laughs> in those days. And, you know, never say you're going to grow up to be just like your dad because one day you're going to look in the mirror and, and you're going to realize yeah, that yeah. you followed. But wow. if, if you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LP FM. This is Nola Matters, Health is a Human Right. It is really an honor and a pleasure to have on Miss Gloria Searson, who is an entrepreneur, a renowned healthcare advocate, a community leader, educator, and speaker in the area of HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C. She started uh, the organization, the Coalition on Positive Health Empowerment, also known as COPE. Uh, you can find more information about COPE at copehealth.org. That's C O P. H-E-A-L-T-H, that's copehealth.organization. Miss Gloria is the president and founding uh, director. The mission of COPE is to increase and promote health and wellness, as well as reducing the incidence of preventable liver-related chronic diseases and lifestyles that negatively impact the liver. So how did we go from HIV to hepatitis C? Again, I think, you know, personally, I was a little upset about the whole a hep C experience. So... Um, being HIV positive, for folks who don't know about how care is delivered, especially back then, we were monitored very closely. We had to go to the doctor every three months. We gave 18-plus tubes of blood. And six years after being diagnosed with HIV, I was in a study, and I found out I had hep C. And that kind of made me very angry um, about how... Uh, you know, we're getting, we're giving up our blood every day. I'm, I'm educating people on how good these treatments are to take care of your, hep, your HIV and, and why you should stay and trust and not, you know, um, you know, be alienated or estranged from your health care. And I had hep C. And then no one wanted to treat hep C. There was a lot of compl conflict about what to do first. Should we take care of the HIV first? Should we treat the hep C first? And I don't know if you've talked about it with anybody else, but the previous treatment for hep C was often pegged more dangerous to some folks than the hep sure, C it itself. was pegylated interferon. First of all, it was an injection. So for most people, that was a, a barrier. Right. And initially it was like every day, then it was three times a week, then it was finally pegylated interferon, which was once. But anyway. Once a week. Once a week. And but then that made you feel like you had the flu yeah, you, and you had to like, take it for 48 weeks. And this, you know, the, the, the depression and all the body ache stuff that came with it was just, some for was some people it horrible. wasn't even better right. than not treating it. At least that's how And in retrospect, we now recognize, and then of course, you know, the medication, I'm, I'm sure you're headed to this, that the medications today are far oh, better. Yeah. Well, that's but, why COVID came to us. Sure. But. In those days, we weren't even 100% clear that the treatment would actually work. Right. And so we, well, were we weren't talking cure, that's for sure. Yeah, we were not talking we were, cure. And we were putting people through very, very difficult treatments without any guarantee. or you right. know, So sometimes was the cure even worth it right. uh, because the pain, quite literally the pain that people went through to, to go through the treatments. So by 1997, the way HIV was going looked a whole lot better than having hep C. Then when you were co-infected, you felt like... 
everything that in education said, well, you know, mono-infection is, you know, 20 to 30 years. With co-infection, it's 6 to 10. Well, we had you, just... Like, mortality. <laughs> yeah, so yes. it's like... Yeah. So it, it kind of like really um, got my juices bubbling sure, even more. I would imagine. Um, I went home that night and I opened up, I shared this a lot, I opened up my son, he was in eighth grade, to t- opened up his biology book to read on the liver. And the first sentence says the liver has over 500 responsibilities that it must do daily in order for you. So that, that's when my just passion came. We have to educate people because now I understand that this is a virus that I probably would have gotten even if I didn't get HIV, because I understood the durability. So now, even before we had the, the, the statistics and everything, I could almost say, well, even the people who didn't get HIV got hep C. So I wanted to really talk to the people I grew up with, right? Sure. That's who I got high with. Those, that was right. the world in which I came from. So now the education, the, the passion to talk about both things. And then now we recognize that, that no matter, as big a problem as HIV is, it still astounds me that hepatitis C, C is five three times, time, five times, five times the amount, five times the, the, the number, which is really quite remarkable. And it really, <laughs> you know, but the one thing that, that is really remarkable and where we are and which we talk about here a lot is that with hepatitis C, this is the first virus that we've actually cured. We have eradicated a virus in the past, and that was smallpox, and we are on a good path, a good footing to really eradicate some of the strains of HPV virus that causes cervical cancer, but we've never actually cured a virus before. We have have vaccines for, you know, Ebola has an extremely effective vaccine. Of course, it came a little bit on the later side after the epidemic of 2014, 2015. But here now, we actually have an opportunity to cure individuals. And the first people to be cured are those that are co-infected. Right. Well, not really. Let's. Okay. So, All right. so, so that's why I started. So set, set me straight. Set me so, straight. Um, well, the CDC and everybody came out with the baby boomer guidelines initially. Okay. Um, it took Fair a minute enough. for the at risk because we didn't want to taint the opportunity to do something positive by putting a population into this that would potentially not get us the policy changes we wanted. I guess okay. I said that politically correct. Because we knew that if we talked about this as being, you know, a drug user uh, virus, we weren't even going to make the headway we've already made, which doesn't come with money Was, was that frustrating for you? Absolutely. But I mean, of, you were kind of having to frustrate. settle. I'm, yeah. I'm actually on guideline committees because um, I don't want to say, you know, um, it, it ha- I'm the only person of color that I've seen on these guideline <laughs> committees <laughs> okay. that is also living with it and that actually knows the science. Right. Um, so... It's very difficult because you can't be the angry, you know, sure. patient in those sure, rooms. You gotta sure. like sit there. But it really There's some is politics. You have to yes, play. Yes, it's very disturbing sure. because I had to actually watch them create the first guideline, and just knowing for where I grew up, just the, the systems and um, how things work. For example, if you say 1945 to 1965, people take that literally. So if right. I was born so in any, 1944, anybody, it's right. not. So, so we did a survey. <laughs> That's true. Guidelines we, are just guidelines. They're not laws. <laughs> we, we, we did a survey to sh- just to say, yes, we understand the guidelines are at least starting the conversation, starting 
the, the issue to be dealt with. But we need to we need to come up with better language so that we could say things that are real. Sure. Right. For example, well, if you live in Brooklyn and you're getting high with people older, this may mean 36 right. to 72. Sure. Sure. Now, maybe in Arkansas, you could really go 45 to. I mean, that's the kind of information that we really needed. But we we after we did the 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 guidelines it didn't change how people did practice so then we we started having states try to change their policies to have primary care doctors at least offer right baby boomers to test so what i think happened the first people that got cured were the people who knew that hepatitis c they were in healthcare already and the other treatment wasn't good for them and now those doctors who they were seeing on a regular basis dealt with it like there was some when the first day uh, Savaldi and Ribavirin dropped, I heard there were like some doctors who wrote a thousand scripts because they had had patients like that they knew had HFC. So they were happy that this happened. But for the people who really, really needed it also, not like the other people did, there was, we had to deal with restrictions and you know sure. insurance companies deciding sure. people had to be sick and had to be clean, which no clinical data supported these. Of course not. This things. was all... This was, so all so here's, here's why I didn't like us being soft with how we said things, right? The okay. guidelines should be, we're in a state where, you know, if we could test all of our baby boomers or we could cure like 80%, like say those things sure. of hep C, then we probably would eliminate any new infections. But instead now, I think the low-hanging fruit is gone. All the people who were not estranged from care, who had insurance, who had a relationship with their doctor, whose doctor is interested in treating. See, all that all that had to be up front before hepatitis C would be treated. Do you see that? Even sure. HIV doctors, and I love them to death. Thank you. <laughs> we're not like, yes, give it to me, let me be trained. And unfortunately, and this is where my staff tells me to be careful, you know, but unfortunately, there was no money, and that was what was, like, telling people, well, you know, it's, it's true, and I understand people sure. didn't have a way to pay for the extra whatever, so it wasn't being taken care of in the HIV community. You're talking about doctors weren't being reimbursed. Yeah, they weren't being reimbursed. The, the staff who had to do their work, there was no yes, line it was, to and, bill. And, this is, and I this will is be crazy. honest that, that when I first started treating folks with hepatitis C, that was a huge barrier that I had to punch through when I was doing, uh, you know, I was still at the university and now I've moved oh, over to an FQHC. We don't advocates. We like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just treat we, the person. We, we have to wrap up here in a second. Yeah. Uh, if you could just tell us, yeah, just tell, final, I want to please. just close it. So I started COPE in 2010 because I had been involved in watching the science. I knew Ray Shinazi, who was one of the people who developed the first molecule that was that became Savaldi, right? So I was excited when we knew this was gonna be a reality. And I actually thought I could do this for 10 years and we'd cure everybody of hep C, at least all the people I, I'm still HIV. hopeful. <laughs> yeah, but at least all the people with HIV. So I thought COPE, what we do is I have I put a network of doctors together, a network of advocates together, and we formed COPE. And what we wanted to do was to basically show people best practices of how to incorporate providing hep C education, treatment, and care into their existing programs with, without it feeling like a burden because we knew that the restrictions were going to have people not treat people in their own 
waiting rooms of something like Hep C. Um, so we've been just fighting with that. We developed a model, and that's why we're here in New Orleans. We have a partnership with the New Orleans Regional AIDS Planning Council, and we're going to be training your peers, That all the peers that are trained with the Ryan White, all the peers that work in the Ryan White program, all the substance abuse programs, have been invited and what we're going to do is we're going to train the peers and the staff and eventually the medical doctors that's how that's for the spring and what we're going to do is bring back best practices to them we're going to work with them so that they can remove all their barriers and that if if what the problem is is people don't come to the clinic we're going to work with each of these institutions and figure out how do we get these people and just to give you a little example of how cult works we take people from point from the point of um diagnosis all the way to cure and we even have potentially six months max yeah of how people are getting cured there are no barriers insurance or not it's just what is it and then fix it yeah and you know just visit our website it doesn't tell you everything and contact norac to find out we'll be training tomorrow the planning we'll be training tomorrow all day and we'll be coming back Every couple of months. Will you come back on WHI? I will. And thank you so much for having me. Miss Gloria, thank you so much. CopeHealth.org. Thank you so much. I look forward to having you back. Bye-bye.